0: I said, empty your mind, be formless, shapeless, like water. I'm going to play like a butterfly and sing like a bee. His ears can't hit what his eyes can't see. Chaos family. What is good? What's going on? Welcome back to another episode of Cerebral Chaos. I am your gracious host, Docella. As always, I am honored to be here with you today. I hope that your week has been magnificent, and I hope that your upcoming week is even better than this one. Look, guys, I'm super excited about the next two episodes. A dear, dear, dear friend of mine, if you haven't heard already, Uh, Reverend Dalen Woodall, who's one of my closest friends in the entire world, also a fellow podcaster, just an amazing story, amazing journey to where he is. Uh, The next two episodes you'll hear, meaning this one and next week's episode, which is part two, will be sort of a crossover episode between Cerebral Chaos, which is my podcast, the one you're a part of, and his, which is The Gift of Gapcast. Um, if you haven't subscribed or downloaded or listened to the Gift of cast, I urge you to. It's a fun listen, sort of on a similar line and similar mind frame as mine, but just a little bit different and unique to Dalen. Guys, I won't take up a ton of time before we get into today's interview, part one, but I do want to give you a thought for the week. Um, instead of a quote this week, we'll give you a thought from Kobe Simmons, who's a professional basketball player. He said, and I saw this the other day, posted on um, Facebook. He said a bottle of water can be 50 cents at a supermarket, two dollars at the gym, three dollars at the movies and six dollars on a plane. Same water. Only thing that changed its value was the place. So next time you feel your worth is nothing, maybe you're at the wrong place. And that's that's a stark realization we have to come to a lot of times if you if you think you're. Not worth what you are at the place you're at. Maybe you need to change your settings and maybe you need to change your surrounding to get your worth out of whatever you think you should be getting. Uh, Just kind of a motivational post of the week. Not necessarily a quote, but a post there from uh, Kobe Simmons. I hope you do take some value from that and place it into your life. But moving on, guys, like I said, we'll get into this week's interview. This is part one. Again, there'll be a second part this week. This week's interview was a little bit more on the serious side and kind of talking about Daylan's journey to how he got where he is now, uh, his upbringing, his calling, his gift. So all that kind of centers around that this week. And then next week, we're actually going to just shoot from the hip. We're going to talk about a lot of crazy chaos type of stuff that want to be a lot more lax and a lot more lighthearted as opposed to this one. So, guys, I hope you do enjoy both interviews. Like I said, this guy is a great friend of mine, a fellow podcaster, just an amazing person. Um, So sit back and relax. And the next thing you hear, I do want to let you know, disclaimer, I will play Dalen's intro music to his podcast, which is the Gift of Gapcast. Again, I'm in love with his intro music. So for the next two episodes, you will hear his intro music on this podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, My next guest on this week and next week's episode of Cerebral Chaos. Welcome my boy, Reverend Dalen Woodall. Turbulence is the price you pay for flying high. Through all the hell and high water you kept us. You brought us to this point, regardless of what we had to deal with. Because you love us so much. Now bless each and every one of us. of Gapcast you my table. You're You've been All right. Dalen Woodall, welcome into Cerebral Chaos. We are here on site. Cater, Alabama at First Missionary Baptist Church. How you doing, brother? I'm doing well, man. Happy to be here. Man, we're glad to have you. Um, Welcome. You're an honor guest. I've been wanting to do this for a while, so I'm excited about us getting into what we're getting into today, man. So first of all, tell us a little bit about yourself. Just give the audience a little bit about who you are, what you are, what you do, etc., etc. Yeah, I'm from...
1: uh... Small and I always say with some affection, barely existent town of Vincent, Alabama, in Shelby County. Grew mm-hmm. up there, went to high school there, graduated from Huntington College, where you and I met. Right. Uh, where I studied communication and theology and religion. Moved to North Alabama. Been here for uh, going on about ten years now, okay. and uh, currently serve as senior pastor, at First Missionary Baptist Decatur, which is the oldest African American Baptist church in Decatur, mm-hmm. Alabama and the second oldest African-American church in Decatur, Alabama, founded right after the Civil War. And so I've been serving as senior pastor here for six years. Next year it'll be seven, working on uh, my master's degree in divinity with a concentration in Christian education. Last year, published my first book, Faces in the Crowd Around the Cross. host a podcast, uh, The Gift of Gabcast, write a substack, Two Hip for the Room. I'm a husband I'm a father I'm a pastor
0: And uh, fortunate enough To be one of your good friends I appreciate that man um, So this, this episode's gonna Come around itself At talking about gifts Walking in your gifts Being in your gifts What is your gift? If we don't know About listening to that But tell us a little bit About what you feel like Your gift is
1: Yeah so when I When I think about gifts I think about something That Cheryl Cashin said She's an author She's originally from North Alabama, graduated from Butler High, which no longer exists in Huntsville, Alabama. Did her undergraduate work at Vanderbilt, got a excellent education at Oxford and Harvard or one of the other Ivies, went to school with President Obama. Mm-hmm. She's a constitutional law professor. But she's also an author. She wrote a book called A Place Not Race, Rethinking Affirmative Action in Higher Education. She wrote another book on the Loving versus Virginia lawsuit that made uh, interracial dating constitutional and cool. not illegal in the country. But she was giving a talk uh, around the release of her book, Place Not Race, mm-hmm. and she said something about gifting or about genius that I think about whenever I think about an individual's gifts. She said, We all are uniquely gifted. Mm-hmm. We just have to dedicate the necessary time to cultivating our genius. Right. And so it had a really big impact on me because I think we normally think about gifts and we normally think about gifting as something preternatural. We think about the gifted people in culture and societies having to be that really impressive and really impactful musician or that really, you know, well-coordinated, greatly gifted athlete or that particularly superlative political leader who has all the charisma. Mm -hmm. But in reality, you know, gifting is about finding You know, your unique path, where your unique blend of personality, where your unique blend of passion uh, sort of intersects with each other. And so for me, you know, that's always been communicating what I think and what I feel and finding out those things about other people. So I would I would say if I had to sort of limit it to one thing or one phrase, I would I would say my gift is perhaps being a communicator. Okay. And you can't be a, a good communicator without being a good listener, coming to develop a sense of who other people are, what's important to them, you know, what animates and drives them as people, what what shapes and forms their character. But in every facet of my life, you know, my personal life, my vocational life, my professional life, my educational life. Uh, communicating and becoming a better communicator and becoming a better listener to the end
0: that I might be a more effective communicator has always been really important. Okay. So you used that gift for communicating or communicating has led you to another form or another outlet of your gift, which is preaching, obviously. At what age did you realize you wanted to preach? Yeah. So I'll, I'll make an important distinction
1: here between sort of personal gifts Okay and a divine calling sure. because while all of us are gifted and I believe God has made all of us to do something, uh, the call to preach was that, you know, it was a call from from God. It was Mm -hmm. not so much a decision. If it was a decision, it's something I never would have done. Right. I dreaded it. You know, (laughs) I I came from a family that was deeply and meaningfully religious. You know, church was very much a part of our life and a lot of people who grew up the way we grew up. That was our story. Mm. You know, we were in church on Sunday for worship, on Wednesday for Bible study, another day of the week for choir rehearsal, another day of the week for some people, Bible training union, another day, you know, all the time, constantly. We were just, you know, subsumed and inundated by church and by religion. And it was just as much cultural as as it was religious. And I was petrified at the prospect of preaching when I began (laughs) to feel the Lord called me to preach because I had heard so many conversations about the preacher Mm -hmm. you know it's an old saw and an old expression that older preachers throw around now and they say no matter what church folks have for lunch on sunday they're always going to have the preacher for dessert they're always (laughs) going to have the pastor for dessert they're always going to make some time to sit around and talk about what he wore that day what he said that day how he sounded that day what he preached that day whether or not they liked it and I didn't want to be that person. You know, I didn't want to be the person that was always on everybody's mind Mm That everybody felt like they had free reign to critique and come to some sort of a synthesis or conclusion about what did you think about that suit? What did you think about those shoes? What did you think about that sermon? Didn't you think it was a little long? I didn't like it as much as I liked the one he preached two weeks ago, you know? And so that was the last thing I wanted to do, but I felt the sense of call. I felt a sense of conviction. I came to understand that God had made me to do the work of preaching and eventually pastoring, and I came to that you know realization when I was a really young person, which made it even scarier. Mm-hmm. I was fourteen when I ultimately uh, relented and accepted uh, that I would do what God had made me mm-hmm. you know to do, and like I said, that made it even scarier. Now, did you? Did you hear the call at 14, or were you fighting it and just
0: accepted it at
1: 14? I heard the call when I was much younger. I heard the call when I was 12. Oh, wow. And I, and I fought it you know, okay. for, those, for those two years. And, I, and most of my friends that are preachers and pastors all have, and I say this with a great deal of affection, a reluctant preaching story. Mm-hmm. Because uh, some of the most impactful and most effective preachers and pastors and Bible teachers and Bible scholars even uh, wrestle with coming to terms with what God is calling us to do. And we all have a long list of reasons why we don't want to do it and why we feel like God is getting it wrong. Mm-hmm. And we all ultimately come to that place of accepting you know, what it was God made us to do. And it is very much about acceptance. I, I, I'll use the term relenting, I'll use the term giving in, but accepting is a more appropriate term gotcha. because it is about arriving at a place of acknowledging this is what my maker made me for. Right. This is what my creator created me for. And anything outside of that is me necessarily struggling against
0: his design,
1: his divine plan for my life.
0: When you first heard that call at 12, how was that for you at 12? I mean, maybe hard to kind of put yourself in the state of mind you were at that point in time, but like, how was it for you? I mean, were you like, oh? Okay, I mean, kind of was that a weird experience for you I, at the time? I would
1: say that it was a, it was a series of events okay. that when taken together and looking back, you know, retrospectively, I realized, of course, hindsight being twenty twenty, what it was the Lord was saying. Mm-hmm. In retrospect, it's unique that from the time I accepted salvation, my relationship with the church began to mean more to me than it meant to a lot of people older people and younger people, but the people in my orbit were mostly older people. It was important to me to go to Bible study and to hear my pastor teach us from the Bible. And it was important to me to leave Bible study with a, a point of understanding of how what he was saying impacted my life. I grasped very early what I would learn later on was the ways in which God's Word, the Scripture, has authority over the life
0: of the believer, meaning it should impact the way we live. Did you ever feel like at 12 years old that you were different? Maybe not no. Maybe not in a positive way, but like why am I hearing this or why am I feeling this? None of my friends, all of my other friends are 12-year-old boys who like wrestling and dirt and insects and bugs, and here I am. I can't wait to go to Bible study. You know, what's funny about that is
1: oftentimes, you know, people who are different don't perceive themselves as being different. It's everybody else who perceives Mm -hmm. them as being different. Mm -hmm. You know, they have a sense of comfort, you Mm -hmm. know, in their own skin. Now, don't get me wrong. I was not ignorant to the degree (laughs) to which everybody else wanted to watch WrestleMania yes, or, you know, ride bikes or play with Mm yo-yos. And I wanted to read the Bible and take Mm -hmm. notes in Bible study. I did notice the incongruity there between the experience that I was having And the experience that they were having. But honestly, you know, as much as I can recollect my 12-year-old mind, I just kind of thought of it as it being my thing. Mm -hmm. That's kind of the point in life where you start to realize, hey, all the stuff I like, everybody else doesn't like. Gotcha. And it starts, you know, pretty inane at first, right? There's some people who like tomatoes and other people who don't like tomatoes. And there's some (laughs) people who like pickles and other people who don't like pickles. You know what I mean? Yep. And so my thinking about it at first was oh, well, it just, this is what it means to me. This is just my thing. You know, it's important to me to take notes during Bible study and to raise my hand and ask questions and to. Uh, make sure that I'm connecting the pastor's commentary or interpretation of Scripture to my life and this is just kind of my thing and that was how I thought about it at first.
0: Did you tell any of your
1: friends at 12 years
0: old that Hey, I think I want to preach.
1: No, 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 absolutely not. No, and I would not have. You know, <laughs> yeah, I was. And, and I didn't, you. you know, and I didn't tell anybody at twelve years old. Hey, I go to Bible study and I take a Mead notebook <laughs> with me and try to write down as much of what the preacher's saying as I yeah. possibly can. I didn't tell them that either. Yeah, there were things, you know, in my life that I think were in the life of every twelve-year-old boy. It's mm-hmm. not that I didn't like watching wrestling. Mm-hmm. It's not that I didn't like watching music videos. It's not that I didn't like playing sports or playing with bugs or going outside side and you know doing the all of the stuff that we did but in addition to all of those things the life of the church the importance of the preaching and the teaching of god's word mm-hmm. occupied a central and profoundly more important place right. when did you preach your first sermon i was 14 i was 14 turning 15 it was april 30th of of that year so let me see do you remember what it was about? Remember yeah. what your first sermon was? Yeah, it was about the greatest commandment. Okay. Yeah. Have you
0: have you ever gone back and analyzed that? Oh
1: god, I tried to, man. <laughs> I I you know, I tried to go back and watch that video that was back before iPhones and everything yep. it was digital. Um, but it was, you know, the greatest commandment uh that we should love each other as as God had loved us and the sermon was about the the title of the sermon was let's love one another. Okay. And I and I tried as best I could to talk about how outside of understanding the commandment to love God and love others as we love ourselves, we can't be Christian. Mm -hmm. Now it was not um, as well put together as that statement was, however Mm -hmm. well put together that statement was, but that was what the main idea of the sermon was about.
0: How nervous were you?
1: Interest, I wanna say something about that sermon and then I'll answer that question. I remember, more than I remember my first sermon I remember trying to decide between that passage and the passage where Jesus was being tempted by Satan in the wilderness and says to him that man shall not live by bread alone. And I remember the week going up to my first sermon and and preparing and being for a little while in that week between those two places. And I remember all of the thoughts that I was thinking about, not the sermon I wound up preaching, (laughs) but the one that I thought about preaching. (laughs) And and the whole time I've always wondered whether or not I should have preached the other one. To so your question about whether or not I was nervous, I wasn't. Okay, not about preaching, not about actually standing behind the pulpit. Okay, and preaching. Interesting. It was everything else. The people. Yeah, you're in that
0: moment. 14.
1: Yeah, 14. So 15. you're 14.
0: Old Baptist Church. Yeah. All of the elders sitting on the front three rows. No, 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 not
1: just all of the elders, all of the community. <laughs> okay, everybody sitting on the front three rows yeah, looking directly yeah. at you
0: like, what is this little boy up here doing? You
1: know, honestly, I'll say, and, and I remember this with, with a great deal of fondness, I think in a lot of the older people in our community, they had a sense of satisfaction Okay. that they were playing, I think, an important yeah. part in my life up to that moment. Yep. My friends were supportive, but they had also a great deal of curiosity. You know, I remember in our old, you know, predominantly African, exclusively African American Missionary Baptist Church, a number of my Caucasian friends came. And so for some of them, that was the first time they had ever been in a black church. Wow. You know, so for them, they're making a lot of memories. It's like the first time they're in a black church and they're hearing one of their good friends or you know baseball basketball football teammates yeah. preach his first sermon for the first so they must have been dealing with some sensory overload mm-hmm. but to your main question i don't remember feeling nervous about okay. preaching mm-hmm. and nervous not in the sense that i didn't belong there or anything like that there's always a little bit of nervousness sure you know i don't want to give you the impression that i felt like i had it all together i still don't yeah. i didn't then and i don't now But the nervousness was not about preaching. It was about trying to preach effectively and trying to get the text right and trying to tell the people what What I I knew God had told me to tell them. Mm -hmm. But it was not so much about the act of preaching.
0: How long did it take you to get that together, that, that first sermon?
1: I mean, in a sense, I've been working on it my whole life.
0: It's already there.
1: Yeah, but... You know, in terms of actual preparation, I, I probably spent about two or three weeks working on okay. it. Okay. You know, writing drafts of it and revising it and reading the text over and over again and just trying to arrive at, you know, an organization of my main ideas.
0: As you were growing and walking into your gift, did you notice a change in, around you? Friends, family, loved ones, maybe acting a little different now that you're preaching or becoming a preacher?
1: Yeah, I would say that was one of the more difficult parts of it early on. Mm-hmm. You know, I grew up around a lot of older people. My grandparents raised me, and I grew up around my aunts, friends, and you know, up until that point, I'd already, I'd always sensed a profound level of comfort and even belonging around people who were a lot older than me and were at a very different point in place in their life. But after I accepted my call to preach to them, I became a preacher. Mm-hmm. And I had become a preacher, and I accepted the fact that I had become a preacher. I did not know the degree to which me being a preacher would impact how they looked at me differently or how they thought about me differently. And so my my aunt's friends, who I could sit down with and watch Gunsmoke (laughs) with before when they got off work, they felt a little differently being around me. Mm-hmm. They were a lot more guarded about the kinds of things they would say to me and the kinds of things they would say to each other. Because before they were just talking to a 14-year-old boy. Right. But now they were talking to a 14-year-old boy who was a preacher. Right. And I think looking back in retrospect, a lot of them had some anxiety and some nervousness about the nature of their relationship with God and the church. And so all of a sudden now I felt like I was a spy. They looked at me like I was a spy, like I was gonna go back and spy tell, for Jesus. <laughs> yeah, like I was gonna go back and tell God what I saw or yeah. what they had said. Yeah, I was watching Dragnet recently. I have a penchant for old shows and old things, mm-hmm. and obviously the main character Joe Friday is the narrative voice of the of the show. And he was talking to this young cop on one of the episodes in season one about what it's like to be a cop, what it was like to be a police officer. And he said, you don't know what it's like yet. You don't know what it's like yet to show up at a party and walk into a room and everyone freeze (laughs) and everyone look at you differently Mm -hmm. because you're the fuzz, because you're the heat, because you're the old man. Right. And now people say, oh, if I have an extra drink, are you going to arrest me? Mm-hmm. Are you going to run me in? Mm-hmm. How many bad guys did you arrest today? That's got to be weird, man. How many tickets did you arrest today? Right. And he was articulating how his vocation had completely changed the impression of him, even in his private social circle, right. that people felt differently when they came to visit him in his home, mm-hmm. that his friends felt differently about him. That his wife's friends and wife's family felt differently about him, because when they looked at him they no longer saw, saw Joe Friday, the person or the retired marine, depending on how much you're into the show. <laughs> but they looked at him and they saw Joe Friday, the cop cop. Yeah. And to a degree, that was my experience. Mm-hmm. you know no longer did they see Daylon Woodall, you know grandson of James and Sarah. Yeah. now they saw the preacher, you know and like I said, I realized in retrospect that a lot of the difference with which they treated me was them trying to work out and ferret through some of their own anxieties and insecurities about the faith and the church. And it was just really hard for them to do that. That I was now in a space where they went to have conversations and to relax, and they just couldn't relax as much. And they couldn't have the same kind of conversations with the preacher around. So that was the way people in my community treated me, my friends and the people in sort of my peer group and social circle mm-hmm. didn't really treat me that different okay. until we got in an argument <laughs> <laughs> or until I said something they didn't like or did something they didn't like. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, the fact that I was a preacher could easily and readily be weaponized to say something really harmful and hurtful. Right. It was if at any point in time, the fact that I accepted my call to preach Could become a target that they aimed for. You know, I'll never forget a conversation or an interaction that I had with someone. She was a little older than me, and we were in class together. And we had gotten in an argument, like you know, teenage kids are apt to do. And I had gotten the best of her, and she knew it, and everybody else knew it. So everybody was kind of snickering and laughing and so on Mm -hmm. and so forth. And then she reached into her bag (laughs) and heard, and you know, reached into her bag and said something she had heard an aunt say. Or a mom say, or a grandma say something that ostensibly she probably didn't even believe, mm-hmm. you know, and said, "You're a fake preacher anyway, <laughs> and you don't have any business in anybody's pulpit." Wow, you know, and she couldn't have had any real concept of what Dude. she was saying, but it was Little certainly kids. the most, you know, <laughs> the most devastating she thing. Pulled it out on absolutely. Her. absolutely, yeah, yeah. But I mean, you know, in that all is fair in an argument, right? Yep. Where you're all is fair in a middle school teenage exactly. argument. Yep. and so that was kind of a microcosm of what it was like for me. Okay, people who maybe didn't have an impression or opinion about me before suddenly felt entitled. Again, my my great fear from the very beginning. Yeah, that I would become dessert on Sunday. You know, yep. people who maybe were completely you know ambivalent about me before now had a neatly formed opinion about whether or not I quote unquote deserved to be it, in yeah. anybody's pulpit. Yeah, about whether or not I
0: had heard God correctly. It's tough. Yeah talk about your grandparents James and Sarah I know the impact that they've had on you how did they tie into this gift as well because I know they were as supportive as they could be but just talk a little bit about the impact they had on you and your gift
1: I remember being the most afraid to come home and tell them Uh not because I didn't feel like they would support me or believe me but because they had begun to hear these murmurs in their social circles by the, from their friends who kind of noticed that I was paying attention and taking notes in church. Or oh, do you think God is calling them to be a preacher? And my grandmother was very particular, <laughs> very territorial and very, you know very cautious yep. and even concerned about the possibility that I could be urged into ministry by somebody other than God, okay. about the possibility that someone could talk me or persuade me into ministry on the basis of their impression. And so when I finally accepted my call to ministry, I was nervous as to whether or not she would believe that I heard the voice yeah. of God right. mm-hmm. or whether or not I had been pressured. I wasn't worried about that with my grandfather. I okay. uh, had a very different personality. He was a very stern and very serious man when it came to his faith and his family, loved us deeply, provided for us greatly. But I sensed from the beginning that he understood the level of seriousness in my relationship with God and the level of seriousness that I had about my faith, and that he understood that I wouldn't say that God told me to do something God didn't tell me to do. I sensed that about him. And so they were the first two people that I told that I had accepted my call to preach. Okay. And and the memory of that is something that I'll never forget. I think about it very often, particularly when I get discouraged or when I find myself frustrated in ministry. I think about how great the challenge of telling them was in my mind and in my imagination. I think about all of the fear that I felt mm. around the possibility that, my grandmother might not believe me. Right. I think about all of the nervousness that I had in trying to kind of shape and form the words and figure out how to tell them in a way that they would be sufficiently convinced. I think about that all the time. And I remember it. She was sitting in her chair. He was sitting in his opposite her. The TV was on. And I walked into the living room and I said, <laughs> I need to tell you two something. <laughs> and. Yeah, I'm a parent now. Yeah, that's not the opening you want for like, <laughs> right, conversations. conversation. Right, and And so I think about it now particularly in that light, <laughs> you know, the possibility that your child needs to tell you something that you yep. don't know. What could this be? Yep. And so I said, I, I need to tell you to something. And, you know, my grandfather looked up from whatever Western he was watching, which was a big deal. Mm-hmm. And he said, okay. And I said, I've been called to preach. And when I said it, I immediately started to cry. It was a catharsis, it was an emotional release, it was all of that nervousness and all of that anxiety, it was saying it out loud to the first time for two people that I loved so much and that I knew loved me so much. It was all of those things that had just come to a head. And I cried and I cried and I cried as I anticipated my grandmother saying she wasn't gonna believe me. (laughs) And I cried and I cried and I cried as I felt overwhelmed with nervousness about what would happen now that I'd said this out loud to two people, and I wouldn't be able to take it back. Mm-hmm. And they let me cry for a few minutes. And when I stopped crying, and when I dried my eyes, they both had the biggest smiles on their face that I'd ever seen, mm-hmm. you know, bigger than any smile that I'd ever seen at any athletic contest or bigger than any smile that I'd ever seen when I had brought home a certificate of completion or something from awards day. It was a smile that I'd never seen on their faces before. And my grandmother's smile, I think, was bigger than my (laughs) grandfather's. And I remember both of them saying, just be a good one. Okay. Just take it seriously. And that affirmation... I was not say there had to be a sigh of relief because you... Absolutely. Yeah. That affirmation from, from them, foundation. that support from them, I just remember going from feeling so overcome with fear and nervousness and anxiety to being like, Oh well, I guess I can do this now. Yep. I guess I can do this impossibly difficult thing that I thought inconceivable before mm-hmm. and incompatible before. I guess I could do it now. And, you know, I think about this a lot because, you know, in my work as a pastor, I engage the kinds of issues that are happening in our society, particularly in our society of black people. And there's a lot of research around the impact of adverse experiences on young people. There's a quantitative measure called an ACE score that calculates all of the difficult experiences that young children face. And it gives them a point for every difficult experience that they have and every traumatic experiences that, that they have, mm-hmm. experience that. And the higher the A score, the higher the adverse conditions of that particular that child's life. And obviously the higher the index of adverse experiences that they've had, the more difficult things are going to be for them, the more prone they are to developing emotional issues, mm-hmm. insecurity, anxiety, post-traumatic stress symptoms, and so on and so forth. But there's a coda to that that I just recently learned about. For every person that encourages that child, that affirms that child, that supports that child, the impact of those adverse experiences lessen and lessen over time. For everyone who ever says, no matter how high that index is to begin with, no matter how many difficult experiences that child has had to begin with, for every person who says, I believe in you, you can do it, I'm gonna support you, right that child's ability to to do it and to achieve becomes even more real and even more tangible mm-hmm. and so i think for them to affirm me and support me you know deep. my my level of confidence in my ability to do this thing that god had called me to do right it really went up a lot <laughs> yeah.
0: so we're gonna fast forward a little bit here so I met you obviously, Huntington in college. We both attended there in Montgomery, Alabama. You were class of two thousand nine. Is that correct?
1: I graduated. You're I mean, older you, than me. You're
0: sorry. High school class yeah. of oh nine, right? Yeah. So I you were, you're behind me. Okay. Yeah. So tell me about the experience of attending an on-campus college where you are different from everybody else. <laughs> <laughs> because we know how college life is. We both saw many things, heard many things. How was that?
1: Yeah, it was a challenge. It was a challenge, mm-hmm. you know, it was a challenge in, the, in the same way, in some similar ways, that you know, my experience in, in high school was mm-hmm. in the sense that my, my peers in high school could at any point decide yeah. to become adversarial. College was a new and different challenge. <laughs> it was new in that I had the space Kind of develop my own okay personality, and I had some level of agency mm-hmm. over the way that people would perceive me because they were perceiving me for the first time, yep you know they weren't working it was with, different okay yeah they weren't working with thirteen years of history gotcha. they didn't remember the time in my life before I was a preacher, right, you know, and so that aspect of it was freeing
0: mm-hmm.
1: that where they were working from was. When we met that day, you know, that point as an 18 year old, they they were working from a place that I had a lot more control and influence over. Mm -hmm. That was that was really freeing and and, and really exciting. That I I got to shape to a degree the kind of expectations that people had for me Mm -hmm. based on the kinds of interactions that we had with each other, the kinds of conversations that we had with each other. The kinds of things they heard me say in class—that was very exciting. I never had a chance to do that before, <laughs> but it was also really challenging. Uh-huh. The, the hard part about college is finding a balance.
0: Yeah, that's what I was going to ask between about like balance.
1: accountability and responsibility. Sure, you know what I mean. The hard part about college is going from a situation as a teenager where you know the locus of control is your parents to now going from a situation to a situation where the locus of control and the kind of it's you it's Mm -hmm. you who makes you get up and go to class it's you who makes you study it's you you know who who decides whether or not you make this decision or that decision without any respect to how it's going to impact and even the necessary information to understand how it's going to impact the rest of your life Mm -hmm. that was scary (laughs) It, it was it was scary to not have guardrails all of a sudden. And in the same way that it was in some way liberating and exciting, it was also really scary that mm-hmm. at any point, I, you know, I went through my whole four years at college with the understanding that at any point today could be the day that I make the decision that throws all of this away. <laughs> yeah, Because we saw people <laughs> yeah. that we started with yeah. that didn't graduate. Mm-hmm. We saw people that we started with who unfortunately, for some reason or another, made some really bad decisions that wound up impacting the trajectory of their life in a very negative way. That was yep. very
0: real, yep.
1: you know? It was something that had to be akin to the kinds of things that people who uh, serve in the military go through. Mm-hmm. When you start in a unit with a set amount of people mm-hmm. and you go away for deployment, and unfortunately, all the people who go away don't come back.
0: Yeah,
1: And, and you see the number of people around you change, and you see the character and the composition of the people around you change. And you're changed as a result of having that experience. Mm. And so, you know, I re- my freshman roommate didn't graduate with me. You know, my roommate that I had sophomore year did. My roommate that I had junior year did. And my roommate that I had senior year, you know, is doing something different with his life. He graduated, but, you know, <laughs> you, you, you sort of see it in that way, right? Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, college was was different in the way that it's different for everybody. But parts of it were liberating and exciting. Parts of it was sort of learning to negotiate the balance between freedom and responsibility. And doing all of that, you right. know, with the call, the high call of ministry um, was was at, at times challenging. But what was really liberating was that I was in a campus environment that was smaller. You know, I went to school with the kinds of students who were not, from where I was from, and so they were not interested in surveilling me, (laughs) you know, they were not interested in sort of criticizing and scrutinizing all of the details of my life. I had a level of liberty, you know, and even vulnerability in college that I never really had anywhere else. Now, a level of vulnerability because I'm black. (laughs) And we went to a school that was a PWI. Yes. And so we had to navigate within those, you know, narrow, very stringent expectations. And we were not held to the same standard that our white counterparts were. And we were not perceived the same way that they were. Mm. And we were not given all of the liberties that they were given. And we were not given all of the opportunities that they were given. And we were not given the benefit of the doubt in the way they were given the benefit of the doubt. You know what I mean? So all of those things were very different. Yeah. Uh, but not with, notwithstanding all of that, yeah. the college environment that I had
0: gave me some privileges and some opportunities that I enjoyed. Okay, yeah. So we're gonna fast forward again. First Missionary Baptist Church, Decatur, Alabama. Right. How did we end up here? I moved to North Alabama in 2013 uh,
1: to take a job at a college here. And I was working as a recruiter, and uh, that was a sort of interesting point in my life because I was traveling for work. And I was doing the job, back to your initial question about gifting and ability, I was doing the job that corresponded really well to my ability to communicate. I was recruiting students for that college in Kentucky, Ohio, and Indiana. Mm -hmm. And I was good at that job. I really enjoyed that job. Like I said, it was a really good intersection of the responsibilities of that job and my my abilities as a communicator. But it was a job that was taking me away from ministry because I understood my call to preach uh, to be a dynamic call, dynamic in the sense that it would develop into a call to serve as a pastor. And I couldn't do that being on the road. road. You know, I couldn't do that being away from a central location. You know, my first utility bill at my first apartment wasn't even $10. (laughs) And I signed a lease and set up utilities and went on the road for six weeks. Mm-hmm. you know and when I came back I didn't have furniture you know wow. and so I had to find a way to come back to the place that I had moved to so that I could re-engage and engage more meaningfully uh, with the ministerial community and um, I was living in um, Madison Alabama and so the area happened to be a place, not in Madison, but out toward Decatur and going into Muscle Shoals, uh, was a place where I had already established friends in ministry. I had colleagues. I had people that I knew and people who knew me. And so, you know, this was the area that I was drawn to because I already had some relationships established here. And I was preaching as a pastoral candidate at a number of churches who were seeking their next pastor. Okay. And it was uh, some of the people and one of the churches who did not call me to be their pastor who made a call to uh, the pastoral selection committee here. And that was how we came to know each other. Uh-huh. And I began preaching here during the time the First Baptist was looking for what would be their 16th pastor. Wow. And uh, that's, that's how we were introduced. Okay. And so the church called eventually me to be their 16th pastor. Uh, their youngest pastor, at their oldest point, the church celebrated 150 years and then called me to be the youngest pastor they ever elected in the same year.
0: How did you bridge that gap? I know you just said it yourself at a time when the church was at its oldest, it took a V-line or a B-line and hired somebody who's probably average, maybe half the age of the members that you have here. Right. How did you, as a pastor and as an overseer and as someone who has to guide the flock and be the shepherd, people who have twice the experiences, twice the lifespan, twice the knowledge, twice the whatever you want to, you know, whatever you want to say, how was that as being a much younger pastor trying to make those older people understand that I'm here to lead you? And that you could you could be trusted because right. there is some some sort of always give and take to where, especially being your age, coming in at a church where it's much older, there had to be some give and take where you guys had to kind of learn each other to get comfortable. How'd that work for you early on? How'd you bridge that gap? I know they obviously love you.
1: Yeah, so I, I got to do a little ecclesiology first. Okay. And say that I wasn't hired, I was called. Okay. The relationship between the church and the pastor is a partnership. Right. In which God leads uh, the pastor to the people and the people to the pastor. Great. But your question is a really good one. And, you know, in some ways there is a gap, you know, because our oldest member is 105. She just turned 105 mm-hmm. and I'm not 105. <laughs> <laughs> and so there is, there is an age gap. There yeah. is an experience gap. Yeah. I I grew up and I came of age in a world very different mm-hmm. than our average member. Absolutely. Uh, the, 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 Context that I grew up in and came of age is very different. The mm-hmm. perspective that I developed as a result of the context totally that I different. grew up in and came of age is totally different. Yeah. There are differences, but those differences don't facilitate a gap because we share values. Okay. Even though most of my members are old enough to be my grandparents, we share a number of critical and essential values. We're Christian. Mm-hmm. We believe what the Bible teaches us about the centrality of the church. And not only are we Christian and not only do we believe what the Bible teaches us about the centrality of the church, but we believe in the value and in the validity of a particular expression of the church. That is to say the historic African-American church. So we chose me more recently than them, but both of us chose to align ourselves, not just with a church, but with a historic African-American church. Now, why did we do that? You could say, in a sense, that it's a sociological decision and that we align ourselves with the kind of church that we grew up in or around. Mm -hmm. But in the same way that you could argue that it's a sociological decision, I could argue that it's an individual choice because during the course of their lives, much longer lives, many of them have had many more opportunities to choose to go to other kinds of churches. And I could have chosen to worship, uh, chosen to accept opportunities to serve in and possibly ultimately pastor a different kind of church. But we chose this church. We chose a church like this because we both share the value that it's important. And here is where we are closely tethered, you know, maybe more closely than would ever initially meet the eye. We believe that the historic African-American church it's not only valuable right now, but we believe it's viable. We believe that it's valuable in the present, but we believe that it's viable, that it has a future, mm-hmm. that it has relevance. So, both my members and I, you know, even though they're on average maybe 70 or 70 plus, we both believe that there's something important in the historical African American church tradition. We both believe that what the African-American church tradition has offered black people and all people is worth celebrating, learning about, preserving, and propagating. We both believe that. You know, the the value that I have about, uh, well, the impression that I have about the value and the viability of the African-American church tradition was nurtured in an African-American church by people who sang songs like Guide Me Over Great Jehovah. By people who sang songs like "I Love the Lord, He Heard My Cry," by people who sang songs like "Precious Lord, Take My Hand," and the belief in the value and the viability about the African American church tradition was nurtured in very similar churches from my
0: members. Right,
1: and so we aren't that far apart when it comes to what matters most. Right, yeah. and you know, interestingly enough, you know, we've had some really interesting interactions during my time here. Where my members have learned that the kinds of songs and the kind of worship that I love in a lot of instances is even much older <laughs> than what they like or what they're accustomed to or what they, you know, what they're used to. We we had a really interesting time learning as a church. I love the Lord. He heard my cry or guide me over great Jehovah or charge to keep I have, you know, because I grew up in a rural, predominantly African American church where we sang those kinds of meter hymns on a regular (laughs) basis. Absolutely. And I pastor in an urban, historic African American church where they grew up singing similar songs but different songs, you know. And so we've been able to learn some things about the tradition from each other.
0: Okay. Did you ever think you'd be pastoring anywhere outside of where you grew up?
1: I hoped, particularly after going away to college, that I would get a chance to do ministry in a different place. Okay. I always believed in the value of having a new beginning, of forming sure. new relationships and, and of making new connections with people. Yeah. And so I, I sensed that I would get an opportunity to pastor uh, and cultivate a pastoral relationship with, with churches outside of where I grew up. I had some opportunities during the time I was in college, you know, with some churches that were sort of in the area of Montgomery, and that's not where I grew up, you know, and so I sensed that that I would have that opportunity gotcha. uh, perhaps, perhaps elsewhere. I did not know exactly where, but I, I did sense that it would be uh, somewhat elsewhere.
0: Okay. How do you balance your schedule with what you do here, family life, raising a son? just being a person. How do you balance all that?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's important to have a, a biblical basis for what our priorities are. You know, my, my first ministry is to my family. It's to my wife, it's to my son, you know, and if they're not okay, and if, I, if my relationship with them is in disrepair, you know, then my ability to, to pastor and preach effectively is gonna be compromised. You know, I'm, I'm going to be preaching and teaching to people on the basis of what the scripture says. And that God creates the family before he creates the church. And so giving them a place of priority okay. in, in my life is really important, you know, and that guides and that governs the time that I spend and, and the energy that I give to anything else, you know. And so my wife and how she's feeling and how she's doing is critically and crucially important to me, you know. And before... I go to church to preach or to teach or, you know, a meeting, I'm going to make sure she's okay. It's the same way with my son, you know, and it was important to me from the very beginning that my wife and my son never sensed that they were competing for my time with the church, that they understood, you know, that they were in a position of priority okay. and uh, they, they're great, mm-hmm. you know, in, in their ability to, to do that and their willingness to to do that their willingness to share me with with the church and with ministry they've been uh, profoundly accommodating you know and i don't i don't pressure them i don't i don't pressure them to assume any roles or any responsibilities in the church I, you know I want them to to come here and worship and come here and, and enjoy it you know and I tell people all the time if my wife is too burned out you know being a member of the church she's not going to be a good wife at home you know and when we're done fussing and fighting here. We have to go home together. You know <laughs> what I mean?
0: So, um,
1: so, so having a biblical basis for how we sort okay. of structure our lives is really important, crucially important.
0: So I know you are a pastor, but I also would categorize you as an orator. Do you often go back and critique your sermons from not so much as a pastoral perspective, but an orator perspective? Like, oh, man, I shouldn't have said that or. Why did I say, um, right there? Like we used to get ding and calm class, but do you find yourself doing that often? As, Absolutely. As a- <laughs> yeah, definitely. For sure. I mean,
1: there's, there's, there's time that I take all the time yeah. in going back and reflecting and critiquing on, on a message. And you, you mentioned it from the, I would say technical perspective, from the communication perspective, from the rhetorical perspective, but I also do it from the pastoral and theological perspective mm-hmm. and say, does this idea, does this proposition really hang together well? Can you, can you arrive or are you going to arrive safely at the conclusion that I'm, I'm trying to bring you to by following this line of argumentation or organization? I, you know, I do that all the time. I don't do it as often as I should. It's really hard, you know. It's really, it's really hard to take 25, 30 hours to prepare a sermon. And then that following week. Give hours to listening to it over again and giving it the kind of critique and kind of reflection that you want, yeah, that it really needs. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I do it, and that's one of the reasons that there's not a whole lot of my sermons out there, (laughs) you know, because it. It passes through a, a pretty considerable <laughs> filter before it can go live on the internet. Right. And even the stuff that's out there now, I'm not like the most pleased with it. <laughs> they aren't like my greatest hits. You know, they're just kind of the stuff that somehow managed to, to kind of squeak through. And there's always something when when I go back and listen to a sermon that I go, man, I could have said that better. I should have done that better. If I go back to this passage again, I'm not going to make this mistake. Yeah, You know, and then there's the dynamic component of, because, you know, I'm a preacher, I'm a pastor, but listen, I'm a Christian. I love preaching. I love Christian preaching. And so when I go somewhere and a friend of mine is preaching or a preacher that I've wanted to hear for a long time is preaching, you know, it's not uncommon that they'll preach a text that I've preached before and they'll notice something that I didn't notice. They'll see something I didn't see. They'll say something I didn't say. And and then it's just kind of like throwing up your hands and they're like, how did I miss that? You know, and so there's, there's reflection, there's contemplation, okay. there's critique that, that happens for sure.
0: Do you still get nervous? Pretty absolutely. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. What do you do to calm yourself down? Say again? What do you do to calm yourself down? I don't know if I ever do okay. calm
1: myself okay. down. You know, But I, <laughs> I still get nervous, man. No matter what, I still get nervous. I'm and,
0: assuming you lean more so just on the text and your message as opposed to worrying about how it's going to maybe come off how well you're going to perform this I would
1: would say internally, you know, the mechanism is sort of shifting your focus from how you're feeling to what you're doing. Sure. Because ultimately what the preacher is doing in the preaching moment is being God's herald. He's speaking on behalf of the king. And so, you know, the degree to which I'm able to quote unquote calm myself down is the degree to which I say, hey, it's going to be God speaking. Mm -hmm. You know, but Our nervousness comes from our level of preparation, our level of study, our level of consideration. You know, and when you have kind of cracks and creaks and groans in your level of preparation, you go, man, I should have read another commentary or, you know, I should have read the text one more time or... You know, I should have looked over that manuscript one more time. I don't know about the second movement of that text. I don't know about the transition between the first point and the second point. What's this conclusion? Did I, you know, is this clear enough? You know, all of that happens, you know, at a hundred miles an hour every Sunday. Okay. You know, and at the and at the end of every worship service and every preaching experience, there is a. <laughs> you know, so absolutely, I still get nervous. For sure, I still get nervous. <sighs> Talk to us about the gift of Gabcast. So I had a chance a number of years ago to be a podcast guest for the first time uh, on a podcast that some friends of mine have and that I've, I've had an opportunity to co-host with them a couple of times um, called No Dumb Questions. Mm-hmm. And that was a big moment you know, for me, and I'm still grateful to them for that opportunity that gave me entree into that area. I've listened to podcasts for a long time. Consumer podcast, lover of podcast. As much as I love music and you and I talk about music all the time. Yep. Much of my time spent listening to music now goes to podcast, you know. Of. I really like the format. It's a really flexible format. You can tell narratives with it, you can tell short stories with it, you can be funny with it, you can be serious with it, you can be contemplative with it. It's it's so valuable, I think, as a platform, and it completely captures, I think, perhaps most authentically and organically how people talk and learn. You know, mm-hmm. when you're listening to a podcast, you're having some level of engagement, some level of personal engagement with the person that you're listening to. Okay. You know, and so I I had been fascinated by the platform for a long time, by the format for a long time, and I had a chance to come be a guest, and there was a tremendous level of support from the subscribers of that podcast okay, and my friends you know subscribers of that podcast were like we want to hear more Dalen stuff <laughs> and I did some more podcasts with them like I said as sort of a recurring uh, guest it was super fun every time the feedback was really positive every time and I was having a conversation with my friend and he said you know at some point <laughs> you have to be like alright are my excuses even good enough anymore yeah. To not give this a try. Right. And and I've made excuses, <laughs> some really good ones. Okay. For a really long time. I was like, I don't have the time and I don't. Yeah. Um, I'm not gonna be, you know, good enough in a in a format by myself, and I'm not. And nobody's gonna listen to it. That was the other thing. Yeah. I said my friends, they have this huge podcast, this, you know, huge following already. I'm gonna put all this time in to make something and no one's going to listen to it. Mm-hmm. But at some point, I said, all right, <laughs> I'll try it. You know, my, my curiosity got the better of me. Mm-hmm. And I, I said, I'll try it. And the last obstacle was, what's it going to be about? You know, it's, it needs to be about something. And I have a lot of interest. You know, obviously, I'm interested in, Preaching. I'm interested in theology, I'm interested in philosophy, I'm interested in you know, history, I'm interested in economics and socioeconomics and behavioral economics and literature and all, so many things. You can't do a podcast about all that stuff. You know, I can't <laughs> choose a different area every week and do that. But I noticed that I had this tendency whenever I was waiting for a pastor friend in his office or visiting with a friend in their home to always look at their bookshelf. And to kind of go, what are they reading? You know? <laughs> and the, and the, not only look at the bookshelf, but like evaluate the bookshelf yeah. and see if I could determine what had been read most recently and what right. had kind of been up there for a okay. while. you know? and, and use that information to enrich or inform my understanding of the person that I was dealing with. Uh-huh. And when I was looking at my own bookshelf one day and kind of thinking to myself how eclectic the collection of books that I had was, I said, oh, there's the idea. You know, in the same way that that bookshelf is completely eclectic and random, my podcast can be that. Because <laughs> that's kind of who I am, you know. Yep. And so I said, all right, that'll be kind of the theme, kind of the big idea. It'll be okay. a little bit of this. It'll be a little bit of that. And so I decided that I'd give it a shot. And then it was naming it, you know. And people have said over the years, you know, you really had a gift of gab. And time. maybe I'll name it that. Maybe I'll name it the gift of gab cast, you know. And I was gonna name it something, you know, more complicated and call it, you know, the gift of gab grab bag cast, mm-hmm. you know. But I didn't want to make it so much of a tongue twister. So, exactly. <laughs> so I just stuck with the gift of gab cast and <laughs> uh, put it out, season one is out and had a lot of fun. A yep. lot of fun recording
0: Yep. Yeah. Um big fan, love the Angel of Memphis man. episode Thanks, man. If you haven't heard it already, please go give that a listen. The Gift of Gabcast, you'll love the Angel of Memphis episode, the Church Candy episode. You'll love that episode too. <laughs> um, go give it a listen. It really is a uh, 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 grab bag Gabcast, gab whatever you want to call it. It's a little bit about everything. You know, you guys had a lot of fun. Doing. Some religious stuff on there. You got some historical stuff on there. It really, it really does have everything. So if you're looking for A new listen, please go download and subscribe to The Gift of Gabcast. How do you feel like that ties into your gift, The Gift of Gabcast? Yeah, I
1: mean, you know, if I was to describe my gift in a word, I would say communication. Okay. And so that's what that is about. Every episode is about, you know, arriving at a position about something, every episode is an equally serious. Every episode doesn't have the same gravity. But in every episode, I'm trying to, you know, develop a central idea Mm -hmm. about something. You know, even on the lighthearted ones, Mm -hmm. the episode about Church Candy is, you know, the lighthearted one this season. You know, (laughs) we're having a semi-serious conversation about our positions and impressions about church candy as young people, and it's pretty lighthearted now, but when I was much younger, it was serious. You know, <laughs> church candy was serious business. And and so, you know, I'm arriving at kind of a, a considered point in position on um, something as lighthearted as that. So in every episode I'm trying to develop an idea and arrive at sort of a synthesis about an idea. And that's what a person who's a communicator does. They take all of the information and all the inputs in the world around them and tries to arrive, you know, at a sort of crystalline, you know, here's what I am, here's where I am, here's what I think, here's what I believe, and and here's why, you know, here's maybe the best way for me to share that with you and explain that to you and articulate that to you, and hopefully after I've done that, you'll understand what <laughs> I believe, you know, and maybe it'll cause you to evaluate and reflect on what you believe and why. Yeah.
0: Okay. You know. Last question, brother. What's next?
1: I'm hoping to finish this master's degree soon and start work on a PhD. Okay. So, educationally, that's next. I'm doing more writing. Now, I mentioned Too Hip for the Room, my Substack. I want to do more writing. I want to do more sort of free-form stuff. I'm not convinced about doing another book yet. Okay. So maybe more writing is next on a platform like that. You know, my newsletter kind of has the feel of my podcast in the sense that it's it's a little bit of this and it's a little bit of that. Mm-hmm. Maybe more podcasting. <laughs> I'm not you know, I'm sold on the platform as somebody who listens to it. Yes. You know, I'm going to be a loyal listener and fan of yours, <laughs> you know. But whether or not I'm going to do a whole lot yes. of the Gift of Gabcast, I'm not sure. I, you know, I kind of go back and forth about it depending on the day. Okay. So maybe that's next. I'm certainly listening to more podcasts is <laughs> next. I don't know if recording more podcasts is right. next. Okay. Um, but continuing, man, to serve, you know, in, in the church, continuing to articulate the position Uh, The viab, the viability and the value of the African-American church tradition, continuing to share, you know, the gospel is our only source of hope. That's always going to be what's next. Gotcha. And finding different ways, different means, different platforms to do that. Okay. And and hopefully having know really interesting conversations like this along the way.
0: Man, we appreciate you coming on. Um, Any lasting thoughts before we let you get out of here?
1: I want to say, man, that I'm so excited that you're doing this, that Cerebral Chaos is an incredible podcast. And uh, it's a wonderful gift to all of your listeners and to the entire podcasting community. Thank you. You know, my only reservation is that we didn't come to this sooner. We would have been thousands <laughs> of know, episodes man. in. We just turned bro. on the mics I when know, we were man. in college. Exactly. And so I have to let go of all of that lost, wonderful podcast <laughs> content that we could have had. Um, but since we can't go back and change the past. Uh, hopefully you'll keep having a meaningful impact on the future. And uh, I hope you keep doing this for real.
0: I will, man. I'm going to go as long as I can until I run out of stuff to talk about. I don't don't think think you'll ever run out of stuff to talk about. there you go.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And I don't think you'll ever be in a situation where you
0: don't have something interesting and meaningful to share. There you go, man. There you go. Special shout out and special thanks to Daylon for coming on this week's podcast. I really enjoyed getting into his story. It's one that I know pretty well, but I felt like it needs to be out there in the universe a little bit more. His journey, his walk, his upbringing, his gift, his leadership, what he does, I I feel like this is something that we as the Chaos family need to know about. So as always, I'm very thankful for him to come on and give me his time. We sat down in his church and sat down for this this first interview, and I really enjoyed it. Um, I really had a great time. Sounds like he had a great time as well, so I thank him again. If you haven't, again, go download his podcast and listen to it, The Gift of Gapcast. Again, we'll get into one of my favorite episodes, The Angel of Memphis, a little bit more in the next week's episode, so you guys come back and and hear a lot more of that lighthearted interview next week. We'll shoot from the hip. A lot of it will be about the first time we met, a few of our college experiences, some of our favorite TV shows. Uh, how they make us feel, just kind of our relationship with each other. Just a lot of wacky chaos, which you guys should be used to by now. So I hope you tune in to next week on part two, where we dive a little bit more lighthearted into Dalen. Chaos family, I'm so appreciative of your time. As always, like, share, comment, leave us a five-star rating, become a subscriber if you like. Um, I appreciate all the love the Chaos family continues to give and continues to to put into the universe. So, so thankful for you guys. So very thankful for all the support out there. Again, I love you and I appreciate you and I value your time so much. So thank you for being a part of the chaos family and being a part of Cerebral Chaos. Guys, that's it. That's all for today. I hope you enjoyed the interview. Don't forget to come back for part two next week with Dalen Woodall. You know how we do it. God bless you and God bless chaos. See you next week.